Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, lesson, uh, really lesson two of this guided Bible study on Ruth. Lesson one was uh, an introduction to uh, reading Old Testament narratives and uh, just a little bit of an introduction to the book of Ruth. If you uh, haven't watched that or, or listened to the audio, I'd recommend uh, doing that before uh, working through this study with us. You can get that on uh, riverstone.church uh, under our sermons and teaching uh, resources tab. Uh, you'll be able to watch or listen uh, to that lesson there. That'll give you some good background uh, in in where we're going to be going uh, over the next couple weeks. Um, remember, we're, we're doing the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is this beautiful little book uh, that breaks down very nicely into, into four uh, chapters, uh, or as we talked about last week, these four scenes. And so we have uh, a, a prologue at the beginning uh, that kind of sets up the, the whole story and an epilogue at the end that kind of wraps things up. Uh, and, and those are important. Uh, and they kind of link together in a way as the, the prologue, as we're going to see, is really the history of Naomi's family. Uh, and then the epilogue uh, is the future of Naomi's family. It's one of the things as we start studying the book of Ruth that we find is that the book of Ruth is actually uh, quite a bit about Naomi. Um, Ruth is certainly a, a major character. Naomi and Ruth and Boaz are really the, the main characters in, in the book in addition to, to the Lord. Um, but uh, the book is, is quite a bit about Naomi. She's really the central figure uh, in, in the book. And so what we have in the middle, sandwiched between this prologue and this epilogue, is, uh, is the, the narrative itself, the story. And it's really a, a story of Naomi's bitter emptiness and blessed restoration. Now, all that happens because of Ruth and Boaz. Um, but uh, as, we'll, as we'll see, uh, the story moves from Naomi uh, experiencing this bitter grief and emptiness and then moving towards this restoration and fulfillment at the end of the book. And it's this beautiful balance uh, where things start one way and they end in, in completely the opposite way. And take these terms, just if you're, if you're interested, this idea of bitter emptiness. We're going we're gonna to look at this a little bit, but this is from uh, Ruth. I don't know if you can see that. Ruth. 1, 20, and 21, and then this idea of blessed restoration uh, from Ruth 4, 14, and 15, and just these, um, these kind of speeches at the beginning and the end of the book where we, we hear about Naomi's condition, kind of uh, bookending uh, what we see happening in the book. Uh, and so we're going to see the story of emptiness and restoration, and in some ways, Naomi's story uh, the, the story that we read about in the book of Ruth is a, a microcosm of, of what's happening in the nation, right? Remember, we're going to talk about this in a second, but the, the, the nation is, is experiencing this period of the judges where everything's going wrong and the people are being totally disobedient uh, to God and they're experiencing God's judgment and the, and the curses of the covenant and, uh, and, and then at the end, there's this, this ray of, of hope in Ruth leading towards the, the next book in the narrative of the Bible, which is 1 Samuel, which is the story of how God brought his, his king, a man after his own heart, David, 
to the throne. And then ultimately, as we, as we zoom out and we look towards what's going to be happening uh, through David's family, David's line, we see that there's an, another uh, boy from Bethlehem who's going to reign as king, and that's the Lord Jesus, uh, the son of David and David's Lord. Uh, so we're going to see how, how Ruth as a book fits into that grand narrative and is really not just, not just about Naomi's family and Na- Naomi's emptiness and restoration and how Ruth and Boaz play a part in that or, or play the central part in that, but also how, how this story of Naomi's family fits into this overarching story of how God is bringing redemption to sinful men and women and broken creation through uh, this, this promised king from the line of David. So we'll see that as we, as we work through the book. But, but for this lesson, uh, as we focus uh, just on chapter 1, so we're going to just be focusing here uh, today. We're going to do the prologue uh, and then do get into the narrative. And the first scene of this narrative is uh, the scene on the road. And we'll talk about what that looks like. But remember, if you, if you were uh, with us last week and we talked about the, uh, the, the structure of a narrative, we start with, with a setting. Uh, so kind of sets the stage for what's going to happen in the story. And then the tension uh, what, uh, what's the, the problem or the conflict that needs to be resolved that's going to move the plot forward, uh, the rising action kind of as the tension builds, the turning point or the climax uh, when uh, we, we see the solution and then a resolution uh, as uh, the story kind of draws to a close. Now, what's important to remember is that uh, the, whole, uh, the whole of the book of Ruth is a story. Uh, in itself, and so it has these these elements. Uh, the whole of Ruth, one to four, has these elements. Um, but it, within the whole of one to four, there are these four sub-stories, um, these four scenes uh, that follow the same pattern. And so there's a sense in which the entirety of the book of Ruth looks like this, right? Setting conflict, tension, rising action, climax, and then resolution kind of looks like that. That's the entirety of the book of Ruth, but then in, in, in the midst of that, you also have these little, these little ones that then kind of go, and I kind of missed one, I guess. So chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, where the, where the ultimate climax of the book is, and then kind of draws to a close. Um, so as we go through through the story, we have to remember that we're not just reading four independent stories, but four stories that all contribute to this to this one this one story. Uh, so when we get to chapter four, we'll talk about how we're coming to the climax of the entirety of the book, uh, and and not just that that story in chapter four. So, but today we're we're focusing on this first story in chapter one. Um, but we'll begin with, with uh, verses 1 to 5, which is the prologue. It just kind of sets up what's going on uh, in the story. The main action in the book, the, the narrative itself, begins in verse 6. So there's a sense in which uh, verses 1 to 5 really just answer the question, how did we get here? If the sort of the camera starts rolling in verse 6, uh, we, we need to know, well, 
We, we need to have some way to orient ourselves. How did we get to where we are? Where are we? Who are these people? Um, why are we here? So verses 1 to 5 will kind of set the book in its historical context. We'll see when this is happening and where this is happening and give us the, the reason for, for what's happening in the rest of chapter 1. A uh, couple things to, to note before we just start reading. Uh, things to look for as we are reading through um, these, these passages. Uh, you may remember this if you watched our, our lesson from last week. One is, is speech. Boy, that is just ugly writing. Speech. Uh, who speaks? What do they say? Remember, um, when, when we see dialogue in these stories, that usually highlights something that's important and uh, that we're going to want to pay attention to. So who speaks? What do they say? Uh, and then we're also going to want to look for repetition. Repetition. Um, repetition, uh, repeated words, phrases, or concepts are, are often important. It's a means by which the author is highlighting something for us. So in particular, we want to look for, for two, two things that are repeated here. We want to look for repetition of the word turn or return and repetition of, of places, uh, names of places. Uh, so uh, we're going to see Bethlehem, Judah, uh, and Moab are, are these repeated places. So we'll see, uh, see those as we go, and, and it'll be interesting. I, I think those uh, highlight some significant ideas that are important, and the author wants us to, to make sure that we're, that we're catching in the narrative. So let's start then in verse 1. Uh, verse 1, the first part of verse 1 uh, here, up, to, up till this point here, um, in the first sentence, is really just setting the context for, for the entire book. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. So this gives us uh, the, the time period in which we are. We're, we're in the days when the judges governed. Uh, and, and if you know... Uh, your Bible at all, you'll know the days when the judges governed were not good days for Israel. Um, it was uh, that time in which, if you just wanted to summarize what that time was like in Israel, there's this repeated phrase in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Right? That's the condition of Israel where, where we find ourselves. Things are not going well. Uh, there is not a revival going on in Israel at this time. Everybody is turning away from God. Uh, and, and in addition to that, uh, in the days when the judges governed, there is a famine in the land. Um, this could just be uh, something that happened. It could also be intended for us to take this as uh, a, a covenantal curse. So in, in, in the Torah, right, in, in particularly in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you have these lists of covenant blessings and curses. When Israel's faithful to the covenant, things go well. When Israel is not faithful to the covenant, things go poorly. And that's uh, in, in order to, to draw them back to faith in the God of Israel. 
and famine would have been one of those. So it's quite possible that we're to, to read this as saying, because of all of this wickedness and unfaithfulness in Israel at the time, they were being judged by God. Uh, and one of those judgments was this, this famine. So that's where we are. That sets us in the historical context and what's going on. So in Israel, there's a famine. It's happening when the judges govern. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mechlon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. So this gives us the, the characters, right? You get this list of names. Uh, here, here are the characters uh, in, in the book. And we start with this certain man of Bethlehem, which we don't learn. We, we learn all, all that we learn here in the first line is a certain man. We, we, we learn um, a couple things. We learn that he's from Bethlehem in Judah, and we learn that he went to sojourn in Moab. So again, here's, here's places. He's got a wife and two sons. And then we learn his name, Elimelech, and his wife, Naomi, and his two sons. And then we learn again, they were Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah, and they entered the land of Moab. So we have repetition here already and repetition of these place names. This probably means the author wants us to, to, to see that the places where they are from and where they are going are important, right? Um, the, the, for, for, for the later readers, the, the original audience, the, the terms uh, or the places Bethlehem and Judah are very important. Um, Bethlehem, as we know if you're a Christian, Bethlehem is, of course, where Jesus was born. But for the Jews at this time, Bethlehem was also the place where David was born, Bethlehem is the city of David, the great king. Um, and uh, the, putting this idea of the Ephrathites, Ephrathites would have been the clan that they were a part of. So the tribe that they were a part of was Judah, and the clan that Elimelech's family was a part of was the Ephrathites. So think big extended family. And uh, Bethlehem and Ephrathah, uh, which is where we get the, the name Ephrata, Pennsylvania, which is where my wife is from. Um, Ephrathah uh, and Bethlehem are, are put together in, in Micah 5.2, where you have this prophecy of a ruler who is going to arise from uh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, uh, and who is going to shepherd Israel. And of course, we, we see that as a, a prophecy of the Lord Jesus, the ruler who comes from Bethlehem. Um, and it's possible that the readers of this book would have recognized uh, that uh, Bethlehem was the city of David and that it was prophesied that the ruler, the Messiah, would come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, in Judah. And so putting all of these terms together is, is probably, there's probably a lot of resonance in the original readers of, we're talking about the, the place, maybe the family of David and the anointed one, the Messiah who's coming. So this is not just a random story about a nice Israelite family. This is a story about the family, 
the most important family, the most important line in Israel. And so the original readers probably would, would have understood that as they're reading, you know, years after the, the events of this book. So Bethlehem, Judah, Ephrathah, that's all really important. It points to this kind of uh, messianic, royal, Davidic uh, monarchy, family line, uh, and, and, and shows us why this family is significant. But then we learn, we learn that they're going to sojourn in Moab. Why is that significant? Well, the Elimelech uh, leads his family to leave Bethlehem, right? The, the place where we know David is going to end up being from and this place that's associated with, with God's blessing and God's rule. Uh, and he's going to go to to Moab. And, and this is a problem because Moab is one of Israel's hereditary enemies. Right? As a nation, they come from Lot's drunken escapades with his, his daughters. And so that's Genesis 19.37. You can, you can read that. Hundreds of years later, as the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, Balak, the king of Moab, hires Balaam to curse Israel as they, as they pass by to occupy Canaan. That's Numbers 22 to 24. And then in Numbers 25, after Balaam can't figure out how to curse them, right, the Lord won't let him, then they say, well, we still got to get rid of Israel, so what are we going to do? They send all these Moabite women into the Israelite camp to seduce the Israelite men and lead them to idolatry. And it was only through the decisive zeal of this Levite named Phinehas that Israel was preserved from destruction. The Moabites' treatment of Israel in the wilderness is the reason that the Lord commands them in Deuteronomy that uh, no Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. That's Deuteronomy 23, 3, and 6. And then during the time of the judges, King Eglon of Moab invaded and occupied Israel for 18 years until the Lord raised up uh, Ehud, the left-handed assassin, uh, as a judge to deliver Israel. That's in, in Judges 3, 13 to 30. And uh, Ehud being one of the three relatively good judges, things start to go downhill pretty quick after, after him. So Moab does not have the best connotations for the Israelites. They, they leave the promised land where God has promised to bless and provide for his people, and they head off to Moab the place of the enemies of God's people. And I think we're intended to read this as an act of disobedience and faithlessness. Now, I want to think about this. Like all the other people in Bethlehem at the time, Elimelech and his family were suffering, right? There was a famine. So Elimelech is not the only one who is, who is struggling. Uh, we're... Uh, the focus is not necessarily, though, on what causes the famine, even though it, it, it's possible that it could be the covenantal curse. And, and, but we don't know. The focus is what Elimelech and his family do as a result of the famine. You see, uh, suffering is not always the result of sin, but suffering often results in sin. Suffering isn't always the result of sin. That is, uh, suffering is not always the, the punishment for sin, but our suffering often leads us 
to sin. Suffering and hardship have a way of revealing the true nature of our faith and character. The famine in Bethlehem didn't cause Elimelech and his family to act in unbelief. It provided them the opportunity to act on the unbelief that was already in their hearts. So rather than stay in Bethlehem, which ironically uh, means in Hebrew the house of food or the house of bread, they pick up and they move to Moab. They leave the land of promise and they go to the land of Israel's enemies. And it shouldn't surprise us then what happens. Um, the next verses, we move more quickly through a long period of time in Moab and, and what happens. And what happens is not great for the family. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. We don't know how he died. We don't know that it was anything, any sign of God's judgment. He just died. And then her two sons, they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. In um, the connotations for the Israelites here is, is not great. They, they were Jews who took Gentiles as wives, not just Gentiles, Moabite women. The Moabite women were the, were the, were the ones in, in Numbers 25 who caused so much problem for the Israelites. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. And the name of the other was Ruth. So here we get introduced to, to one of the main characters. But we don't know yet that she's one of the main characters. And they lived there about 10 years. So here, in the, in the course of just these few words, 10 years passes. We don't know anything about what's going on there. And then after those 10 years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died and the woman, that is Naomi, the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. And all of that sets the stage for where we go as we enter into this first part of the narrative uh, on the road. So we start in verses 6 to 9 with the, the setting, kind of where we are, and then the tension. Um, what is the, the conflict or the problem that, that is going to, to lead up to this uh, resolution and solution that's going to move the plot forward? So as we, we work through this, we'll go through setting tension, rising action, the turning point, and the resolution. Try to follow that pattern to show you how the story follows that kind of curve. So verses 6 and 7 uh, then will be uh, basically the setting. Then she arose, so she is Naomi, with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah." Notice again, uh, right off the bat, we have repetition of the land of Moab. She's going to return from the land of Moab, for she'd heard in the land of Moab, just in case you forgot that's where she was, she was in Moab, that the Lord had visited his people, giving them food. And then she's going to return. Where's she going to return? Where she came from, the land of Judah, which we knew just a few verses ago. Uh, and so again, I think the author's highlighting Naomi and her family were in a place they were not supposed to be. And 
now she's going to, to return because she'd heard that the Lord had visited his people, uh, which it means that the famine was over. Now he was, he was giving them food. Things, things were better. Uh, things were not going well in Moab. They, they went to Moab looking for blessing, uh, and all they found was, was death. They went to Moab looking for life, and all they found was death and grief. And so now Naomi's getting ready to, to return to Bethlehem. I uh, also want you to, to notice again, just by way of repetition, here's the word return. She's going to return from the land of Moab. Uh, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. This idea of, of turning about um, is, is going to be an important repeated phrase in these verses. So Naomi, the childless widow, and her two Moabite daughters are, are on the way. Uh, they're on the way, or they're on the road, which is why I call this scene the road. They're on the road to return to the land of Judah. The famine was over, and Naomi was going to return to the land that she and her family never should have left. Now, I don't know that I would see Naomi's decision to return here as any particularly godly or pious reasoning. Um, Naomi really has no reason to stay in Moab at this point. And at least if she goes back uh, to her hometown, she'll be among her people, even if she has no immediate family left. And so here we are, three bereaved women, on the road to Moab, or on the road from Moab to Judah. So that's where we are. We're walking with these three women. And then verses 8 and 9 uh, set up the tension that's going to drive this, this part of the story or this, uh, this scene in the story forward. We don't know where they are, but Naomi, uh, other than on the road, but uh, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. So again, here's the word return. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So the tension here is that Naomi is instructing her daughters-in-law to, uh, not to accompany her back to Judah. Right? And it's this interaction that chapter 1 is primarily going to be about this interaction on the road. So we don't, again, we don't know at what point during the journey this is happening, but somewhere on the road, Naomi stops them and tells them, all right, you've come with me far enough. Now it's time for you to go back. Um, maybe it's when they reach the border between Moab and Judah, and, and finally she's like, all right, we're about to go into, into Judah now. It's time for you to turn around and, and go back home. Um, she's not doing this out of, uh, out of, uh, any kind of hate or spite or, or, or a grief, I don't think. Uh, she, she genuinely cares for these women. It certainly appears that way. Um, she, she is offering these benedictions to them, right? May the Lord, may the Lord, may the Lord deal kindly with you. May the Lord grant that you may find rest. Um, to, to deal kindly uh, is the Hebrew word chesed. Let's see if I can remember my Hebrew. That might be backwards. Chesed. Um, and, and this word chesed is a very important word in the Old Testament. It's most often used to describe a characteristic of God, his loving kindness or his steadfast love. 
And there's really no English word that quite captures what the Hebrew word means. It's something like, uh, uh, one commentator said, pledged, unbreakable, covenant, love, and loyalty. Uh, it has this, it, it's more than just love. Uh, it's more than just kindness, uh, though the, the New American Standard tr will often translate this word as loving kindness. But it's bigger than that. It has specifically to do with, with the covenant that God makes with his people, that God pledges and binds himself to his people uh, and, and demonstrates that loyalty and faithfulness and mercy and kindness and love consistently, uh, that, that it, is, it is this absolutely unbreakable uh, love uh, with which God has bound himself uh, to his people. And, and so she is basically praying for these women. Uh, may the Lord uh, show you this loving kindness, this covenantal love, uh, as you have shown to me, uh, and as you have shown to, to my family. So I think she's really highlighting how, how faithful and loyal these women have been to her and her family. Um, so it seems like she really genuinely loves them. Uh, now, this word is, is very important in the book, but it's not important because it shows up a lot. Um, it, it only shows up a couple times in the book, maybe three or four times, I think four times. Um, but it, it's more important how and when it shows up and, and then how the concept that it describes, this, this steadfast love and loyalty um, that, that, is, that is tied up with God's covenant with his people, uh, how that concept is illustrated by, by both the, the human characters and God, though the word itself doesn't necessarily get used. I think that we see examples of it, and, and that's going to prove important. Um, uh, one commentator, uh, Christopher Ash, says, although it co only comes four times in the book, it's perhaps the most important word in the book. Uh, which is why I've titled the entirety of the, of the study uh, The Loving Kindness of God, because ultimately I think that's what, what the story is, is about. So here, Naomi's praying that God would show covenantal faithfulness, love, mercy to these two Moabite women who have shown that same love to her. Um, and, and it's not just that God, she wants God to deal kindly with them. Uh, she is also uh, telling them, you should... Uh, you should go back, and, and may the Lord help you to find rest in the house of her husband. Of course, this would mean that Naomi's thinking, you need to go back home and marry Moabite men and live a, a happy life. Um, she's not just praying that God's going to bless her daughters-in-law, but they're going to find new husbands with whom they can flourish. But that's going to happen, in Naomi's mind at least, that's going to happen in Moab. It's not going to happen in Judah. How did the women respond? It says they lift up their voices and, and wept. These women clearly loved uh, Naomi as well. And it seems Naomi clearly loves them. So why is she telling them to return to Moab? Well, the main reason is probably because of the hardship that Naomi knows that these women are going to be facing when they return to Judah. See, in the Torah, there are laws about how Israel is to structure society in order to care for the most vulnerable. 
And there are three categories of people who consistently come up and, and are mentioned as being the most vulnerable and the ones who are going to be protected by these laws. Widows, orphans, and foreigners. And I think Naomi probably recognizes that both Orpah and Ruth fit two of the three categories. They are both foreigners and widows. Uh, and so they're going to be especially vulnerable in, in Israelite society. Now, you may say, but there were laws to protect these people. You're right, but just because there were stipulations in the laws for caring uh, for these groups doesn't mean that it's actually happening. And if this is all going on during the time of the judges when there's no king and everybody's doing what's right in his own eyes, then generally speaking, we can probably uh, believe that these things are, are not happening on a large scale. I think Naomi's probably right to think, I don't know that I can rely on people being faithful to the law to provide for, for, for me, let alone my, my foreign daughters-in-law. So, but in Naomi, we have this, this really frustrating mix of faith and unbelief. Uh, she, she's a very complex character. Where she prays for her daughters-in-law, and she, she says, I, I want the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, to do these things for you. I want, you. I want him to show covenant loyalty to you. But then she instructs him to go back to Moab. Um, well, that's not what you would do if you were being faithful uh, to God. And, and I don't know how she can expect God is going to, to bless these women returning to their pagan uh, Gentile society. Uh, later in verse 15, we're going to see she specifically tells Ruth to follow Orpah back to her people and to her gods. Right? And this juxtaposition is very frustrating to say the least. Remember, um, this is a real story, and Naomi is not necessarily somebody that we are being instructed to emulate. We can see in her the very real example of how people process suffering in their lives. They're not always consistent or rational. And so in one breath, she says, I, I'm, I'm praying that the Lord is going to do this. And in another breath, she seems to have no problem saying, go back to your gods. And, and um, certainly not seeing Yahweh as the one true God, the God of Israel as the one true God. So uh, Naomi's actions here seem to be a mix of true love for her daughter, uh, her daughters-in-law, right? She wants them to be cared for, realistic thinking about the future, things are going to be hard for them in Judah, uh, and either irrational or completely ignorant advice. Um, be because things are going to be hard for them and, and she wants them to be cared for, they should return to Moab and worship they're false gods. Well, we have, we have uh, Naomi's instruction that they should return. And then uh, we have the, the, this, the, the tension building, the rising action. So Naomi says this, well, what's going to happen? What are the women going to do? They clearly don't want to do it, right? They're weeping. And they said to her, so Ruth and Orpah together say, no, but we will surely return. Again, there's the word return with you to your people. So they don't want to do it, right? This is a remarkable demonstration of love on their parts, to be willing to leave their home and their people to go to Judah, uh, where they were going to be among the most vulnerable. The fact that they're willing to do that shows that they really love Naomi. But Naomi's going to have none of it. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters, 
why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Naomi's point here is that not only would they be among the most vulnerable in society, but their prospects for marriage and family in Bethlehem would be relatively slim. She knows that they are women of, of high character, but two Moabite women are unlikely to attract many Israelite men. And Naomi says that even if she were to remarry, conceive, and have more sons that could uh, marry the, uh, the, the wives of their dead brothers, and we're going to talk about some of that, that's called the law of Leverite marriage, we're going to talk about that in the next lesson a little bit. Even if Naomi could have more sons that could grow and become husbands for Ruth and Orpah, they would have to wait far too long. They would be past the age where, where they could have children. So uh, Naomi says... Don't, don't think that this is what you, you need to do. Don't come with me. You're, you you're going to ruin your life if you come with me. Now, the, the fact that Naomi is making such a big deal out of there's no hope for you to have a husband and a family in, in Judah, that may sound a little odd uh, to us. Because, y- you know, in our, in our society, in our day and age, um, for, for a woman to, to be single and have a career is, is nothing particularly strange, right? We've got to remember, in this society, this is all a big deal because orphans, widows, and foreigners are the most vulnerable in part because they have no one to care for their needs. Right? Again, that might sound strange to our ears. Why couldn't Ruth and Orpah and, and Naomi, why couldn't they just get jobs and work to provide for themselves? But you've got to remember, that's not the way that things worked in this culture, Right? Regardless of how it sits with our so-called modern sensibilities, at this time, this would have been a big problem for these women. Um, not because they needed a man to make them valuable in some way, but because uh, the, the nature of the way that culture and society worked, um, having a husband and a family meant that you had people who could care for you, who could provide for you. So for Ruth and Orpah to have little to no prospect of marriage and family in Judah would be to consign themselves to a lifetime of say, living off of state welfare. Well, how do they respond to this? Verse 14. When they lifted up their voices and wept again. They're still devastated over this. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. It's probably... Is intended for us to, to be taken as Orpah kissed her and said, okay, I'm going to honor your, your wishes. I'm going to turn around and go back. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Uh, this word clung um, is, is also pr- probably related to, uh, to the idea of, of covenant. This is, I think it's the word that's used in Genesis 2.24 to describe how a, a, a man will leave his father and mother and cling or hold fast to his wife. And so there's this, this, this covenantal description uh, of marriage there in Genesis 2. And, and so Ruth clings to Naomi. There's this intense loyalty and love 
um, that goes beyond what Orpah was demonstrating. Ruth refuses to leave. Now, Naomi still does her best to get Ruth to go back. Right? Naomi says, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Actually, I believe the word gone back, this is also the Hebrew word for return. So again, you have return over and over again. Naomi is, is, in, is intent that she's going to return to Judah, but that her daughters-in-law need to return to Moab. And apparently has no problem saying that she can uh, return to her gods. So again, this kind of shows us, the, at the very least, the ambivalence of Naomi's faith. Right? Regardless of how sensible a decision it would be for Orpah and Ruth to return to Moab, to specifically say that she should return to their gods shows that Naomi's faith is feeble, to say the least. And we're going to see this even more clearly as Naomi stands in stark contrast to what we see in her daughter-in-law. Right? So here we're, we're getting to the turning point, the climax. What is Ruth going to say in response? Naomi has insisted over and over again. Orpah has finally given up and is walking away. What's Ruth going to do? Some of the most famous verses in the book, often they're read uh, at, at weddings. Um, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. So turn back, again, the word return. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Right. This is the first time that Ruth speaks in the book. And so I think we are, we are supposed to kind of sit up and take notice. Uh, Orpah does not speak on her own. Right? Earlier it says that they both said to Naomi. This is the first time that Ruth gets an independent speech. Orpah doesn't speak at all. So far the only, people, the only person who has, who has really spoken in the book is uh, Naomi. Uh, and, and so Ruth speaks. And this is what we might call Ruth's conversion. Right? The word isn't there. This is Ruth demonstrating chesed, that unbreakable covenant love and loyalty to Naomi, and not just to Naomi, but to Naomi's people, and most significantly, to the God of Naomi's people. Right? She's pledging herself and her loyalty, her allegiance, not just to Naomi, where you will go, where you will lodge, but also your people and your God. Right? In fact, she calls him here the Lord. Again, this, is, this Lord is, the, is, a, is a, uh, the way that we translate this Hebrew word uh, uh, Y-H-W-H or, or uh, yod Hey vav Hey uh, in, in Hebrew, which is the, the, what, what we often will pronounce as Yahweh. It's the covenant name 
of God. And so she calls God by his covenant name. And she pledges her loyalty in this oath. May the Lord do to me and worse, if anything, but death departs you from me. That's an oath. She's taking an oath of loyalty uh, to, to Naomi and to Naomi's people and to the God of Naomi's people, the God of Israel. And so this is more than just love for Naomi that leads her to do this. The fact that she's using this kind of covenantal language, making pledges and oaths, clues us in a bit. But beyond that, we have to, to ask, well, so what exactly is the difference between Ruth and Orpah? Right? They both loved uh, Naomi. They both didn't want to leave her. They both have demonstrated this deep love for her. Is the difference that, that Orpah just gave up easier? That she loves Naomi, but Luf, uh, Ruth loves her more? No, I, I think it has to do with the spiritual change that's happening in Ruth. See, not only is Ruth willing to go with Naomi for Naomi's sake, she is also uh, willing, because of uh, uh, God's working by grace in her heart to transform her, um, she's willing to go to Judah with Naomi and not just be loyal to Naomi, but, but to be loyal to God. The difference between Orpah and Ruth is not the amount of their love, but the object of their loyalty. Orpah maintained her fundamental loyalty to her people and her gods. And so Naomi insists and she, she goes back. She loves Naomi, but, but love for Naomi is not enough in order to get her to, to come with her to Judah. But Ruth has transferred her loyalty from her people to Naomi's people. From her God to Naomi's God. Remember, Orpah, it says, returned to her people and her gods. And Ruth says, yes, Orpah has returned to her people and her gods, but your people will be my people and your God will be my God. In the, uh, the face of such potential hardship and suffering as a result of this decision, it can only uh, be a decision that was brought about by the secret working of the grace of God in Ruth's heart. When you consider what she was going to be stepping into, right? Naomi, the Israelite who went to Moab, tells her Moabite daughters-in-law to go back to their gods. But Ruth, the Moabite who's going to Israel, tells her Israelite mother-in-law that she is swearing allegiance to the God of Israel. It's remarkable faith because it would appear that all of the prospects for, for future family and prosperity for Ruth lie in the direction of Moab. But apparently Ruth knows enough about the God of Israel to, to be able to say that she's willing to endure whatever suffering and hardship is ahead of her in order to be included among who, uh, those who know God. I think Ruth realizes that to be a part of the covenant with God, to be in, in God's favor, in God's blessing, to know the God of Israel is of greater value than anything that she could find in Moab and, and causes her to be more than willing to endure whatever suffering she's going to find. I mean, it's challenging for us. Are we willing to give up uh, things that maybe would make our life easier or better in some way, that we, at least in the ways that we think, 
in order to have Christ? Are we willing to give up everything? Like Paul says in Philippians 3, are we willing to count everything as an advantage to us as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ? I think Ruth basically does that. She gives up every prospect she has at an easy life to embrace a life of suffering because God, the God of Israel, is more precious to her than anything that she could have in Moab. Right? Notice as well that Ruth's conversion, if we might call it that, um, concerns not just God, but also God's people. She doesn't just ask Jesus into her heart, right? She doesn't uh, just, just say, Jesus, forgive me so I can go to heaven when I die. It, it's not just a commitment to, to God, but also to God's people. Um, for her, in, in the time of the Old Covenant, that meant the people of Israel. For us, this, in the time of the New Covenant, means the New Covenant people of God and the church. So, uh, I wonder if this is the way that you think about your relationship with God. Uh, for you, does the idea of a deep commitment to God also entail a deep commitment to God's people, the church? And what does that look like? Can, can you have true allegiance to God while you stand aloof from his people? Something to think about. So uh, this is the only thing that Ruth says in the, in the whole scene, but it's the most important thing. It's, it's the high point of the chapter. Uh, Naomi, who has this ambivalent faith and, and has been kind of vacillating, they, they, they go to Moab, They're, she's returning to Judah, she, she tells her, her daughters-in-law, um, that they need to turn uh, back from Judah to go to Moab. And, and instead, what happens? Ruth turns from Moab to Judah, not just physically, but spiritually. She turns from the people of Moab and the gods of Moab to embrace the people of Israel and most importantly, the God of Israel, right? This is her conversion. And then verse 18, when she, that's Naomi, when she saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So maybe at this point, Naomi's like, okay, it's hopeless. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give up. And then we come to the resolution, the, the end of this chapter. And you know, think this is kind of a, a poor resolution because it doesn't really resolve anything. But remember, this is the, the resolution just of this scene. It brings this scene to a close. Uh, and then it it sets up where we're going to go in the next scene. So there's not total resolution because there's still problems. And, and uh, where we end this scene and, and some of the problems we end up with in this scene are going to drive the book forward. And, 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 and we'll start to cover some of those things in chapter 2. So, um, so they both uh, went until they came to Bethlehem. So they returned to Bethlehem, and when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Now, the women said, it's interesting, the women said may, may mean, not said to her, but may mean the women were, were just kind of gossiping. They're like, Wait a minute, is this Naomi? The, the woman who, who went away, you know, a decade ago? What happened to her? This, this, can that really be Naomi? So she said to them, maybe overhearing them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
Remember, it's been quite a while. It's been at least 10 years. So you can imagine the toll that the last decade has taken on her physically and emotionally. And she says, don't call me Naomi. So Naomi uh, means pleasant. Uh, she says, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. She says, don't call me pleasant. That's not the way my life has gone. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She continues, says, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Again, you have the kind of the juxtaposition, pleasant versus bitter, full versus empty. So why do you call me Naomi? Why do you call me pleasant? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. It's not totally clear how Naomi is understanding the situation. We've already seen her relationship with God is confused. We're not quite sure where she stands with that. And this is not to say that in times of grief we don't struggle with, with our faith. I think absolutely we do. Um, but, but some of the decisions that she's making are maybe indicative that she's not, she doesn't have a, a really wonderful relationship with the Lord. Um, it seems like she's blaming God for causing the calamities in her life, um, and that she's not taking any responsibility for, for anything. She's, in a sense, kind of accusing God, God, you did this to me. Right? Remember, Sin doesn't always lead to suffering, but suffering often leads to sin. And now Naomi is result, uh, suffering uh, probably as a result of the sin of her family, um, leaving, going to Moab. But she's not ready to acknowledge her part in it. She says, I went out full, and she's probably referring to her husband and her sons, and the Lord brought me back empty. See, she's, she's, she's too narrowly focused on what has happened, the circumstances of her life, to see the, the whole picture. And the reality is we never see the whole picture, not as God sees it. But when we suffer, we can, get, we can get tunnel vision, and all we can see is our suffering, and we cannot see anything else going on outside of it. So here, Naomi, whether she's penitent or not, and I, and I, and I don't think she is, she seems to be struggling with belie believing that God is truly providentially caring for her. How could she? She's, she's bereaved. She's grieving. What's especially ironic here, I think, is that, and, and maybe gives us a clue into where, she, where her mind is at, that she's, that she's so um, concerned about, uh, about what's happened to her. And she says, the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, this is going to, to, to um, end up being juxtaposed with what we see at the end of the book where she ends up being filled again and, and receiving this fullness. Um, but she says, the Lord has brought me back empty. Uh, and, and it's ironic because standing right next to her when she says this is Ruth. The Lord has not brought her back empty. In fact, the Lord's brought her back with a newly converted daughter-in-law who's already exhibiting more zealous faith than she is. Uh, Naomi can't see 
uh, how rather than being brought back empty, the fact that she's come back with Ruth is actually going to mean a greater fullness than she could imagine. She can't yet see how God's providential care, his chesed, his loving kindness, his covenantal love and loyalty is going to be demonstrated to her even more through the ordinary actions of this, of this young woman. She can't imagine that what has happened is actually going to result not just in blessing to her and her family, but also blessing to the whole nation and ultimately to the whole world. But she's so narrowly focused on this experience in her life, and, and let's give her the benefit of the doubt. She, she was grieving deeply. And yet, she wasn't responding in, in humble trust in God and His wisdom. She was rather accusing Him, saying, the Lord has done this to me. He's witnessed against me. He's afflicted me. He's dealt bitterly with me. I think ultimately we'll find that what the Lord has been doing actually in the long run will be showing tremendous kindness to her. It's a good reminder for us, uh, as John Piper has said, that whenever God is doing something, he's actually doing a million things, uh, things that you can't yet and may never see. The events of our lives are like a composer jotting notes on a staff. Some are in major keys and some are in minor keys. And taken in isolation, they may sound as if they're out of place or that the composer doesn't know what he's doing. But we don't see the whole picture. He does. And in the end, he's composing a symphony for his glory and not a note will be wasted. Naomi's so focused on her circumstances that she doesn't allow her gaze to be widened to see how God might be working. She's focused on the individual notes and whether or not she likes them, not the way in which they're being weaved into this beautiful melody. And so where we cannot see the whole picture or hear the whole symphony, we are invited to trust the wisdom and goodness of the composer. And I think when we get to the end of the book of Ruth, we'll see, well, this is why all of this happened. Uh, we'll see God's uh, providential care and hand weaving all of these events together to, to bring about good, both for his people and glory for his name. So verse 22 ends the story. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. So again, we have two, two more occurrences of returned. And again, a mention of the, the land of Moab so they returned from the land of Moab and they came to Bethlehem. And now they've gone from this place where they shouldn't have been. They're back in Bethlehem where they're supposed to be. But now we have Ruth in tow. And then we get this line that says, and this was the beginning of the barley harvest. Kind of an odd way to end a, to end a, a, a scene. But we're going to see why that's important in the next chapter. Right? This is verse 22 sort of summarizes everything that's going on in, in chapter 1. It sums up, gets it ready for, for scene 2, chapter 2, in which Ruth just so happens to find herself in a barley field during the harvest. <laughs>